0: Good morning. Again, if you're with us visiting this morning, we're glad that you're here. Thanks for joining us for this Sunday before Christmas. I'm Brandon Barrett, lead pastor here at Grace Covenant, and we're, we're just glad to have you with us. Uh, before we get started, one thing I just want to say, a thanks of my own to, to our deacons for taking good care of us in the midst of snow and ice and all of that. So. As I got the early morning calls and uh, knew they'd already been out here working, I was just reminded again of how well they take care of us, so thanks. Uh, here we are in the fourth week of Advent, the, the Sunday right before Christmas, and so we're going to uh, just go out on a limb and we're going to read the Christmas story from Luke chapter 2. We thought that might be appropriate for us to do. So if you'd like to be turning in your Bibles there, we're going to be reading Luke chapter 2 verses 1 through 20, and you'll find that on page 857 if you happen to be using one of our pew Bibles there. Let's pray together, and then we'll read. Let's pray, Father. We uh, come before you and your Word this morning. Um, all of us, from wherever we're coming in places of faith, all of us getting geared up for Christmas this week, uh, and many of us may be feeling lost in the rush. Uh, people, we are people very much in need of, of hearing from you, and in the midst of the craziness of Christmas, we're in people of, who are in need of being reminded of. Um, What you tell us about Christmas, being refocused again on what it is that we are celebrating, the opportunity that we have before us. We need you. So we would you meet with us today by the power of your Spirit. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. This is the word of the Lord, and it's given to us for our good and for his glory. When I think about Christmas, and as I entered Christmas season, uh, I feel like there's, and it, maybe you feel this too, that, that there's this tension involved In Christmas and our expectation of Christmas and and some of that's for us maybe personally and some of it's cultural but as you think about it I mean this everybody knows this this holiday uh, here in the United States and across the world in many places it's like it's like no other holiday that we celebrate it's like nothing else whether you come to Christmas uh, as a Christian from a place of faith or or not we know that there's just something different about Christmas because it evokes uh, a desire for something deep and rich maybe even a desire for something transcendent. There's this desire somehow for things to be made right in our lives, for there to be the presence of joy. There's something about Christmas that digs down that deeply into us. And you may well know someone, or or honestly may be the person that, that that you can think of, you point to and say, well, this person doesn't care at all about Christmas. In fact, they're cynical about Christmas. But don't you see, even our cynicism sometimes belies the expectations that we have under the surface because we're only cynical about the things that we feel like have deeply disappointed us. See, Christmas grabs hold of something deep for us. So on the one hand, we've got this uh, deep desire, but on the other hand, we're just distracted by so many things. Christmas is one of the craziest times of year. And so we're, 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 we've got this desire, and in many ways, we're, we're scratching for that itch in all kinds of different places in travel, in stuff, in time with our families. And so everything that we come across, somehow it doesn't seem to quite uh, scratch that itch. And, and the, pi- the picture I've got in mind, if you've seen the movie <coughs> Christmas Vacation, and you remember uh, Clark Griswold out there for the family Christmas, and he spent all day tacking four million light bulbs onto his house so that he can light it up and have the most glorious Christmas ever. So he's been doing this all day long, at risk of life and limb. And then there he is in the dark at night, standing out there ready for the unveiling. He has the whole family lined up, all the in-laws and the kids, and he has the kids do a little drum roll for him. And he takes the cords in either end, and he dramatically, slow motion, he sticks them together, and nothing happens. And you see him muttering, I must have, there must be a light out up there somewhere. And he just kind of wanders off. And we have the sense sometimes of all these expectations and all this is going on, and we put them together. Maybe for many of us at Christmas, at the end of the day, we feel like maybe nothing really happened. What are our souls longing for? What is this deep thing that grabs us? What are we itching for? Well, this story that we read here in Luke chapter 2 is about this itch of our souls and the reality that is meant uh, to scratch that itch, that to fill that longing. It talks about Christmas. It talks about the birth of a baby. And it talks about us, humanity, being reconnected with our God, finding the transcendent reality that we so deeply thirst for. Finding ourselves able, we hope, at the end of the day, and this is what's pointed to us in the passage. Able to say what the angels say when they come and deliver this good news to the shepherds out in the field, surprised by the wonder of God, and hearing these words, glory to God in the highest. Because you see, the angels get Christmas. They get what it's all about. They know what it's about and what, it's, what it means. And that's what's unfolded for us here in Luke chapter 2. We see what Christmas is about. We're going to see three things: first, that Christmas shows us something; secondly, that Christmas brings us something; and thirdly, that Christmas asks something of us. It shows us something, it brings us something, and it asks something of us. First, it shows us something. Look again at first third of this, and or excuse me, second third chapter, verses eight through fourteen. When we see these shepherds out in the field in the middle of the night likely a cold winter night, and uh, suddenly out of nowhere these angels appear to them. And anytime in Scripture when you, when you see an angel actually appear to a person, uh, they are undone, a, as these men are. And it's not just the shock and the surprise of the electric lights when all they have is a candle. It's, it is the, the presence of these messengers of God invading their life in a surprising way. And they're terrified. And the angel knows that they are terrified and that's exactly why when the angel comes his first words to him to them in verse uh, 10 are fear not for behold i bring you good news Their first response is fear and the angel's first response to them is fear not Now throughout scripture we we see that we're in fact not only urged but even commanded to fear the Lord We read things like this the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom that there is an appropriate right response of awe to our God. And certainly that's a good portion of what's maybe going on in the lives of these men too. But also, imagine what it would be like if God just called you out of nowhere (laughs) and appeared not with a telephone ring, but appeared uh, with blazing glorious light. These angels that step into the world and they are not just afraid in the sense of awe for their God, they're terrified, as you and I would be as well. And we are reminded by the angels that when God comes, when He breaks into our world, into our lives, the response of fear does not have to be one of dread, does not have to be one of terror, because these angels have good news to bring to these men and to us. So they show up and say, do not fear. But secondly, and at the heart of what they say, what, and what we see here about what Christmas shows us, is the remarkable news that God is pleased with us. Doesn't it make you a little uncomfortable just to sort of hear that? I mean, we confess sin together, and uh, many of you have uh, have been a part of this church for a long time. We talk a lot about the weight of our sin. Maybe you're visiting this morning, and you walk in and you think, I thought I was going to hear about my sin. Isn't that what Christians talk about? Well, we certainly do. But listen to this word from the angel. It says, God is pleased with us. Verse 14. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. You see, the very first word we have in this scene of God breaking in is to tell these people, don't be afraid. God is pleased with you. See, that's the starting point for God. Coming after people like this. And people like us. It's this season of of holiday and Christmas movies. One of my favorite Christmas movies growing up and for my whole family was the, the movie It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, I mean, anything with Jimmy Stewart in it, right? It's, uh, it's great. So I, I love this movie, but as I sat and reflected on it, I thought about what is really kind of the message of the movie It's a, it's a Wonderful Life. If you recall uh, Jimmy uh, Stewart's character. He He plays this this guy who, it feels like his whole life is suddenly falling apart. He's involved with this bank, and uh, suddenly he, he's driven to the depths of despair. It's Christmas time. His family loves him, but he goes out into the cold, and he's ready to throw himself into the river and commit suicide. He thinks it's better if he had never lived. And this, He does throw himself, but an angel, Clarence, I think was his name, yanks him out of the water, and he walks him through this picture of, of what his life would look like if he had gotten his wish, if he had never been born and he comes to see in the course of this movie that his life has had this enormous impact on members of his family, on friends, on his entire town. And in the end, he's grateful that he's alive. Okay, it's, it's a beautiful movie. But the message of the movie is this. Take heart, you are somebody, you have done good things, and your life matters because of your accomplishments. That's the story of It's a Wonderful Life. Because it hits on this longing for us that we want to believe that our lives matter and that the criteria we tend to use is that we have accomplished something good and we have justified our existence. We want to take heart because deep down we want to think that we've been good people. But you see, when the angel comes and declares this good news of God's pleasure, he comes and tells them this, Take heart, not because you are somebody and not because you've made a difference, but because God is somebody. Because God has made a difference. Because He is pouring out His love on you. Because He is coming to you. See, He comes to these very ordinary shepherds who are on the very bottom of the social rung in their culture. Despised by most people. Their testimony was not accepted in court because they were considered to be untrustworthy. They were not allowed to participate in temple worship because they were outside all the time and could not keep ceremonially clean. God comes to these people. These people on the very margin of society. And He says, fear not. God is pleased with you. God's first word is His pleasure poured out on you. Not because of your track record, but in fact in spite of it. Now we've got other Christmas ways of saying this. Um, You know well the song, uh, Santa Claus is Coming to Town? Here's how it goes. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. He's making a list, checking it twice, He's going to find out who's naughty and nice. Santa Claus is coming to town. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. Do you see this picture of Santa Claus? He is omnipotent God who sees you every moment except he's not necessarily pleased with you. And at the end of the day, at the end of the year, is it going to add up that you actually have presents under the tree or ashes and switches? You see how... Very opposite this is of what the angels say, which is God does see. God knows it all. The dark part's even better than you do, but it says his first word to us is that he is pleased with us. That he's chosen to be pleased with us. That he's chosen to come after us in love. You see, God show, Christmas shows us this, that God is pleased with us. Not in the sense of being proud of our accomplishment, but in the sense of choosing to shower upon us His pleasure, even though we don't deserve it and can't deserve it, even though we can't earn it, we can't live up to it, even though we haven't. In Christmas, we see God taking the first step, making the first move, coming to us. You see, Christmas shows us something. The second, though, that we see here, Christmas also brings us something. It's a time of giving gifts. But it's not the kind of gift that we uh, tend to expect. Think about some of the presents maybe that you're expecting and hoping for for Christmas this year for yourself. Um, Along the line of of Christmas movies, maybe you've seen the movie The the Christmas Story, and there's a little kid, Ralphie, growing up, and all he wants is an official Red Rider carbine action 200-shot range model air rifle. And every time he shares this, this news of what he wants, including to Santa, everybody looks at him and says, but you'll shoot your eye out. And he almost does. You see, Ralphie, in the middle of wanting this air gun, what's he thinking? Somehow, if I get that, something will be right, and it'll be complete, and I'll be satisfied at least for a while. You might not want a BB gun. Maybe you want something else this Christmas, and maybe it's not a thing. Maybe what you want is something different for your family. Maybe you want an interaction like never before. Maybe you want to be able to go into extended family this Christmas and not feel the old wounds or not feel the old arguments or not feel the ever-present tension? What is it that we too are longing for and looking for Christmas to bring us? Because as we said, Christmas digs down deep to these things of our heart and lays them out on the table for us and says, we are wanting this. Is it what we need and where are we going to go with it? These angels come and say that Christmas does in fact bring us something. It points to two things. One, it says that it brings us Peace, again verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Maybe you've never really thought about the fact that what you most deeply want is peace. Old Testament picture of this word peace is one of of life made right. It's not just the absence of conflict, but it is the presence of God's blessing, power at work in the world. It is all the loose ends being mended and put back together again. The angels come and say, God has come to bring us peace. And they say this right in the middle of a world that was looking somewhere else for peace. In fact, when they come and say this, they are subverting everything that the shepherds know because they live in the middle of the Roman Empire. They already have a king, and his name is Caesar Augustus. He is the one who they look to to bring the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome that spread all over the civilized world. The same Caesar Augustus who is known by, by titles like this, Savior and Lord. The one who brings peace. The angel steps in and says, it is not Caesar. He is not the one in power. But there is one who can bring you real peace. And the pictures of earthly power were all around them. If you look back at the beginning of this passage, how does it open up? Caesar Augustus speaking a word. Let there be a census. And everybody in the world scrambles. You've got Mary and Joseph, Mary on the verge of giving birth to a child and having to make this three-day journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem, the city of Joseph's family's birth. Imagine that in uh, the end of your third third trimester of pregnancy. I don't want to leave. I can't leave. I've got to go to the hospital. I've got to be in town for my OB. And Caesar Augustus says, No, I have said the word. You will go. This story opens up with a Lord an emperor in control. By the end, we find that there is a different emperor and a different king. And these angels come and say, there will be peace, but it will not come through Caesar. It will come from a different king, a child being born, even this night, as they proclaim to these shepherds. He comes to bring us peace, the gift of Christmas. Another way of saying that really is that Christmas brings us something, really brings us someone. It brings us Jesus. Because of course, that is the gift of Christmas. And that is the central event of what happens here in chapter 2. We see Jesus coming in, undergoing what uh, theologians call the incarnation, taking on flesh, taking on a human nature, stepping into our world as a real man, here as a real baby, come to save the world. And Jesus, as he comes, he comes first to us in humility. And again, look at this setup. The king of the universe being born a stable because it was too crowded in the inn this poor woman and this poor man laid in a manger no family there to celebrate think about what happens when your own baby is born and you're there taking pictures for all the world to see i laughed this week one of the couples in our church this week had a new baby and got on their website and they had 400,000 pictures of their newborn baby. They were proud parents and they should have been. That was entirely right. And here, though, we see Jesus born in obscurity in a manger. To try to wrap our minds around it, hear what one commentator says about this. To understand what an indignity this was, we simply need to remember who Jesus was and is. He was the firstborn of all creation with a unique status as God, the one and only Son. He was the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He was the creator of the universe, the maker of heaven and earth. He was the King of kings and Lord of lords, the supreme ruler of all that lives. He was the second person of the Trinity, the only begotten Son, the radiance of the Father's glory. By His divine nature, He shared in the full perfection of God's triune being. This baby, born in Bethlehem, was the all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful, and all-glorious Son of God in a manger. Here's what Theodotus of Ankara said in the 4th century. Choosing for his birthplace an unknown village in a remote province, he is born of a poor maiden and accepts all that poverty implies, for he hopes by stealth to ensnare and save us. If he had been born to high rank and amidst luxury, unbelievers would have said the world had been transformed by wealth. Suppose he had been the son of an emperor. Then he would have chosen as his birthplace the great city of Rome, and they would have said, oh, how useful it is to be powerful. Imagine him the son of a senator. It would have been said, look, look what can be accomplished by legislation. But in fact, what did he do? He chose surroundings that were poor and simple, so ordinary as to be almost unnoticed, so that the people would know it was the Godhead alone that had changed the world. And here's the way Paul said it in Philippians. Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not account equality with God, something to be grasped. But He made Himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, this gift given to us, this Jesus, comes in humility. The humility of the Incarnation. But there is a flip side to it. We get a glimpse of it here. Not just the humility of the Incarnation, but the glory of the Incarnation as well. Look with me again at verse 11. The angel says to the shepherds, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The glory of the Incarnation. This is the only place in the New Testament where all three of these words occur together. Savior. Savior. Christ and Lord, these three terms of glory for Jesus. As one commentator says, Savior points to his role as deliverer, Messiah or Christ points to his office in terms of the appointed, in terms of the promised anointed one of God and Lord indicates his sovereign authority. These three terms talks about him as Christ. The Old Testament term behind that is Messiah, one who has been picked out by God for a special purpose. In the Old Testament, priests were anointed by God and prophets were anointed by God and they look forward to a Savior who is going to be anointed by God, the Messiah. And the angel comes to these poor shepherds out in the middle of nowhere and says to them, the Messiah, the long-awaited one has come. God's anointed, chosen one has come. You're going to go find Him in a manger. Go there and look for Him. It says He is Christ also says that He is Lord. He is King. And in the full sense of this word, though these shepherds might not have really grasped it in this moment, but we see it as it unfolds in the book of Luke, that Lord is none other than God Himself come to flesh in the person of His Son, the Lord, God, here, breaking in to our dark world, Go, you're going to find the king in a manger. You're going to go find the one who will subvert all other power. The one who truly is emperor. The one against whom no one can finally win. Our king who reigns and will reign forever. A baby in a manger. He's Christ, he's Lord, and he's Savior says, here is the one who will come and save you and give you a salvation that reaches to the deepest points of your actual need. Not just for emotional fulfillment, not just for material possessions, but much deeper. He will come and heal the rift that marks your life, your separation from God. He has come to bring salvation. The angel says, that baby that you're going to go find tonight, he is Christ, and he is Lord, and he is Savior. They're going to go and find this baby wrapped in swaddling cloth, lying in a wooden manger. And what they don't know, but our author Luke does, is that the same baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in wooden manger, one day would be wrapped in burial cloths, lying in a tomb, so that he could accomplish what is said right here. Savior. But even that, not the end of the story. A Savior born here raised to life, for our redemption, for our healing, for our salvation, these angels come and say, this is the one who has been born to you. So Christmas shows us something and it tells us something. And then finally, Christmas asks something of us as well. You know, there are some things that we are told and there's some news that we get that you can just sort of let slide and ignore and others that you have to pay attention to, right? I mean, you know this experience when when you turn on the nightly news or you read the newspaper. Think about the stories that you've heard and don't remember. Or think about when you open up the paper in the morning, the articles that you don't read or maybe entire sections of the paper that you don't read because there's news there, but you know it's not news that you need to know. But there are other things that we're all told in life. That can't be ignored. That as soon as you hear that news, everything changes. And whatever you do next, however you respond to that news, it is a response to that. There's a fork in the road and everything is now defined by that. Whichever way you go. This is the kind of news that comes to us in Luke chapter 2. This is the kind of news that comes to us in the gospel when we are told that God himself has stepped into flesh and he has come that he might save us. There is good news of peace found in Jesus and in Jesus alone. That is the audacious claim of Christianity, and it is the claim of Christmas that that Savior, Lord, and Christ has been born. And so, as soon as you hear that news, whatever you think about it, then you have to realize on its own terms that is news that cannot be ignored. Even if you feel like you're on the outside looking in, here are all these people that think we're desperately in need of of restoration with God and there's only one way to find it. It's in Jesus. And that's what I'm being told about. Don't you see? There could be nothing more important than that. As you hear that news, we go in one of two directions. We move towards this one, this Jesus, this Savior, Lord, and God. Or we move away. And that's the decision the angels have as well. Here they are. They see this appearance of angels. And what do they do? They then have to decide what to do next. The angels disappear. They look at each other. And they could have said, you know, pass the beans. <laughs> Let's get back to dinner. But what do they say? We have got to go find this child. Let's go. And they do. They respond. They respond. Everything is different for these shepherds now. We see several responses here. Verse 18, when they come to Bethlehem and they find this baby, they begin to declare the things they've said. And it says that everybody who heard these things wondered. Another way of translating that would be that they they marveled. And the picture here is that you've got this however-sized crowd of people that have heard this news from them and they kind of scratch their heads and say, wow. A few weeks ago, many of us were at uh, uh, at Grand Illumination in CW, and you know that that feeling you have after you see this this sort of big uh, fireworks display. You just kind of look around. Everybody in the crowd goes, "Wow!" And then what happens? Most of us shake it off, and we go back to our cars, and the magic's gone, right? You've got a crowd here that wonders, and we don't know what happens next to them. But then you see we see Mary who responds. Verse 19, what does it say about Mary? She takes these things that were said to her and she treasures them. She ponders them in her heart. In other words, she takes the things that have been said to her and she takes them in. She begins to chew on them and reflect on them. As we'll see, Mary, in fact, spends a lifetime chewing and reflecting on this news that has been given to her about her own child, her newborn baby Jesus. She takes it, she grabs hold of it, and she tries to plumb its depths. And then finally we see the shepherds. Not only have they come to Bethlehem and given this good news, they get the the last note in this story. Verse 20. The shepherds return glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. First they see angels coming to them in glory, telling them about the glory of God. And what does it say at the end? They have been changed and they leave glorifying God, responding to, uh, to Him. Because the gospel asks something of us that we have to respond. In fact, not only are we called to respond, we're called by Jesus to respond in a particular way, to turn to Him, to recognize the fact that He is King and to begin to live our lives ordered around that central reality. God Himself come in the flesh, the King has come, and He is now our King. Don't you see that changes everything? And it started right here this Christmas morning out in the middle of nowhere in a manger and the glorious God stepped into flesh so that we would not be left in the cold and in the dark and in obscurity, but instead be brought into the very heart and home of our Father. Let's pray. Father, we do pray as we come to Christmas this week. that this story would again shine brightly for us, or maybe for the first time, shine brightly for us. That we might see and give glory to You, Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, Prince of peace, mighty God, Savior. This week even, open our eyes and give us true and deep joy this Christmas in the middle of whatever situation we are in, the joy that is rooted in You, that we can know and be children of the King. And it's in the name of this Jesus we pray.